Welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm your host, Victor. I think it's fair to say that a lot of environmental and conservation organizations are looking at ways to bring in more diverse audiences or participants. Our goals are generally to protect the natural environment so that it continues to be there to support all of us in the future. And one of the key ways we go about this is by trying to get as many people as possible to reconnect with, value, and appreciate the natural world. And yet it can seem, or maybe it's true, that a lot of organizations tend to regularly see people from the same sorts of backgrounds coming out to enjoy the sites that we look after or participate in the events that we run and engage with the lessons that we teach. Today, I'm going to be looking at this issue of diversity in environmental education through the lens of colonialism. I'll share some insights from a few articles that have helped to shape my thinking on this issue, as well as some resources and ideas to help make our practice more culturally responsible and hopefully accessible to people from backgrounds different from our own. As always, you can find full show notes on our website, knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. Every episode has detailed notes with links to additional articles and resources for those who want to dig deeper into the topic. When looking at how colonialism still echoes around us today, it can be helpful to start with ourselves and think about the legacy empires have left in our own histories. So today, I'm going to start with situating myself. I was born and raised in the city of Toronto, part of the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Today, Toronto is home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, unfortunately, none of whom I really learned about while I was growing up in Toronto in the 90s. I'm also a child of the British Empire. My mother moved to Canada from Hong Kong, and my father moved to Canada from Malaysia. Immigrants from a former British colony who moved to another colony and adapted to life there. I was a child with a toe in the life of an immigrant family, but also raised in a largely Eurocentric Anglophone North American culture. And to this day, it's that Eurocentric English-speaking North American culture, which resonates more strongly with me than the cultures that my parents came from. Now, when I think back to growing up in this culture in Toronto in the 90s, it really felt like a time of multicultural celebration. But the problem with multiculturalism at that time is that it feels like it didn't really develop understanding or long-lasting learning about people. A lot of the talk and effort around diversity at that time now feels a bit more like decoration around what was, again, largely a white English Euro-American core. So it, it felt like tokenism. Given this context, it's not really surprising how strongly Euro-American and scientific my environmental education toolkit has been. So again, it's not really surprising that the people who share that same kind of background are the people and the kids that I find it easiest to connect with. So what am I trying to do to help me connect better with people from different backgrounds? The first question I thought about is whether or not these narratives of colonialism are relevant within environmental education. Because I think very often as environmental educators, we think that when we're teaching about nature and how ecosystems work, somehow people aren't, are out of that picture. 
But I also think that that viewpoint in itself is a product of a colonial kind of mindset. So how does environmental education reproduce colonial structures and mindsets? Well, first off, as I've mentioned, it's often done from this Western scientific perspective on nature and ecosystems. This is perhaps not quite so much the case in younger grades when play, arts, and stories often embrace the outdoors and natural settings. However, in older grades, uh, these education systems tend to restrict the study of nature and the environment to the STEM subjects. Then there's the recent development in environmental and conservation lobbying groups of uh, these concepts of natural capital and ecosystem services. One way of looking at these two concepts is that they take the relationship between the natural world and people and then encode it within a capitalist system of values. Now, in theory, these ideas could push economic and political systems to safeguard nature because natural capital puts a value on nature in, as raw resources and ecosystem services tries to put a value on services that the environment provides like flood protection or purification of air and water. Now, from another perspective, these attempts to calculate the economic value of nature sort of further strips away any sense of intrinsic value. As discussed in the paper, Indigenous Knowledge and Science Revisited by Aikenhead and Ogawa, Indigenous ways of conceptualizing nature often don't have this strong dichotomy between people and nature. Instead, places are part of the people who live there, and often those people refer to it as their relations. And so evaluating the worth of an area's resources and services might be like trying to quantify the value of your cousins or your parents with all the problems that that entails. And so can environmental education reproduce and reinforce colonial mindsets? I think the answer to that is yes. In an article by Sheila McLean in The Canadian Geographer, she writes that environmental education tends to focus on the effects of environmental destruction in a way which ignores the root causes like capitalism and colonialism, and it overlooks the different ways environmental damage can impact different populations. Now, on this front, it seems to me that there has been some change in the last few years, particularly with progress being made by Indigenous populations and countries of the global south beginning to have their voices represented and respected in national and global forums, particularly with respect to climate change. So though there's still a long way to go, environmental educators do seem to be recognizing these concepts around environmental justice. So can environmental education reproduce colonial structures of inequality? Uh, I think the answer to that is yes, if they continue to ignore these different ways that environmental damage impacts different people. There can be, especially in places like here in the UK, a bit of a sense that decolonizing efforts are not relevant because it's thought that the UK doesn't really have an Indigenous population. Related to this, there can also be a sense that efforts at decolonization kind of forgets about white kids, that these ideas of cultural responsiveness leaves them behind because they don't have a culture. But I want to challenge both of these views. So if we look back through history, the peoples of Ireland and the British Isles have actually been subject to a series of colonization events, which affect the languages and the views of the people here. So we had Celtic tribes with different languages and different material cultures, 
And sometimes they got along, sometimes they didn't. They would have invaded one another, they took over and would have ruled over people from other tribes. Then there was Roman conquest, which shaped the cultures and the British landscape with the building of roads. They even shaped the British diet with the introduction of such exotic plants as apples and plums. Then there were Viking invasions and the imposition of the Dane law, which shaped much of the English language, including famously the names for the days of the week that we currently use. There was Norman invasion from France and many other episodes like this. So learning about how these episodes left marks on what are now the cultures of the British Isles might go some ways towards understanding that white identities are in fact cultural. They're cultural in just the same way that indigenous peoples have cultures or that Afro-Caribbeans have cultures or Asians have cultures. But in addition to this history of being invaded and colonized, Britain is also a colonizing power. When we talk about the legacy of colonialism elsewhere in the world, one of the main issues discussed is the way colonizing powers create narratives and structures to legitimize and reinforce their control. But those worldviews and systems were generally not only deployed in the colonies. They're often based on narratives and systems used at home to legitimize and reinforce structures of inequality. So again, when we think about the British Empire, the same narratives of authority and civilization and education were not only used by the powerful to justify their control over the colonies and indigenous peoples, but also at home to justify the elite's position of power. Pedagogies developed by efforts to decolonize education around the world generally include themes about understanding and reconciling with differences and inequalities. And so these pedagogies offer benefits even for places uh, or peoples without the same recent history of colonization. So are efforts to decolonize environmental education relevant in places which at first glance do not have indigenous populations or recent history of being colonized? The answer to that I think is yes, because decolonization is about recognizing history, reconciliation between differences and inequalities and giving voice to peoples whose voices have been silenced. And so for me, it seems clear that decolonizing environmental education is relevant and necessary. Then the next question is, what might decolonizing environmental education look like? First, I think it involves recognition that our perspectives on nature are shaped by our personal culture and background and the cultural environments that we work within. And that part of our role as educators is to build bridges between these different ways of knowing. And so a useful way to begin, as I did in this episode, is by conducting an archaeology of your own way of understanding the world. Uh, and the metaphor of archaeology is quite useful here because um, it's a process of excavating the layers of influences and considering how they affect the way that you see the world. So you might reflect on how you understand nature, what's your relationship with it, what experiences shaped the way that you view the natural world, who guided and taught you, and how did they do it. You might consider your relationship with structures of power and authority, like the education system, teachers, the principal. All of this will help to build up what can be called a cultural competence and will help you to respond supportively to students and their backgrounds. Language also strongly shapes how we interpret the world around us. 
those of us who are more or less monolingual might find it difficult to understand what is meant by different ways of knowing because we don't understand the nuances of words that we weren't raised with. But that makes it, in some ways, all the more important to work on expanding our understanding. So once we've got an idea of how culture impacts on the way in which we understand the world and the ways in which our students understand the world, a culturally responsive practice which can help to build bridges is to invite students or community members to share their own knowledge and understanding. However, don't expect them to be an expert. Uh, in part, this is because many communities have weakened or lost connections with their cultural backgrounds. But also, we are the teacher and we should not expect a student to do all of the heavy lifting. We have a responsibility to educate ourselves. However, offering the opportunity to share can be a really culturally sustaining thing to do. It's an opportunity for elders to share their knowledge with a younger generation. It's also a chance for children who have drifted away from the culture of their parents and grandparents to see it presented in a, a different setting, in that educational setting. And that might help them to see it in a new light and to reconnect with it. Another good starting place for tackling concepts in a culturally responsive way is to simply consider approaching that topic through the lenses of different subject areas. Environmental themes are already well incorporated within the sciences and geography, but also detailed scientific investigation of nature often makes use of many mathematical skills. Most often this is in graphing and data management, but I think we can all benefit from more experience dealing with probability and statistics, both of which also play an important role in environmental science. In language arts and media studies, as we do in our film club episodes, maybe spend some time on the use and depiction of nature, or maybe consider the consequences of its absence from the story. You could also choose to study some works by and about marginalized communities, not just marginalized communities close to you, though those are certainly relevant and important, but also consider that we exist in a global community. Our way of life impacts the lives of other communities, like those in Africa and the Americas who produce our coffee, Asian communities who grow our tea, and farmers all over the world who make money to survive by growing cash crops instead of their traditional foods. And that allows us to have almost any fruit at almost any time of year for pretty much the same low cost. What stories and ways of looking at the natural world come from those experiences. In history, some time could be spent on not just how people interacted with each other, but also how they interacted with, impacted, and were impacted by their environment. You can also pay attention to whose stories are not being told and what happened before the protagonists in history arrived into the picture. For classroom teachers, this suggestion of using these different subject areas to explore environmental issues allows those issues to really be foregrounded and understood in a deeper and richer way. For outdoor and environmental education providers, offering a wider range of sessions and resources increases the range of ways people can access your services or sites. It opens the doors for teachers other than those science or geography leads to be booking those sessions and it allows teachers to make stronger cases to administration and parents for the reallocation of those precious classroom hours. Applying different curriculum lenses also opens more opportunities for students to connect with the environment. 
students for whatever reason might have a block or difficulty with engaging with science can have other opportunities to appreciate nature if it's included in other subject areas. It's also an approachable first step towards decolonization because it still looks a lot like traditional education. And so it can help to bring other people on board with the journey. But we should also remember that it's only a first step. The really difficult work is changing what teaching looks like and how the classroom works. Zaretta Hammond is a teacher, educator, and the author of Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain. It's a book that's underpinned by neuroscience and research into learning and development and uses those insights to explore ways of being more culturally responsive. In a blog post for Cult of Pedagogy, Zaretta gave an excellent way of thinking about culturally responsive teaching. Basically, it's teaching in ways which mimic how students learn before they started school and while they're at home and away from school. So it's thinking about what strategies their parents or families use to teach them life skills back at home. She provided three tips for more culturally responsive teaching. These are to one, gamify it, two, make it social, and three, storify it. So first, let's look at gamification. Gamification adds game elements into teaching. Zaretta highlights that games often make use of features which are really common in oral knowledge traditions, things like repetition and pattern recognition. And so students who are more used to learning things in those oral traditions might find them a bit more comfortable. Games also add a little bit of competition, which can help with engagement. However, the wrong kind of competition can be alienating for some kids. So remember that competition does not have to be against other students. It can also be competition against themselves, like doing speedrun games where you try to beat your previous score or your previous time. Gamification can also include competition against the game, which can also support the development of collaboration skills. If you're into board games, think of things like Forbidden Desert, where everyone is working together to reach a certain goal. So what might culturally responsive gamification look like? Well, you might start by finding out what games or kinds of games the kids you work with like to play, and then build activities around those. Do the kids like to play chasing games? Do they like make-believe games or games of chance? Think about what kids are doing in their games and whether those game elements echo systems or concepts that you're teaching about. Better still, you could have students develop their own game. After being introduced to the concept, students could adapt the rules of a game which they like to fit the concept which is being taught. This is also a great opportunity to check students' understanding because translating the concept into the game requires them to really understand the relationships between different parts of the concept so that they can sensibly translate it into the game. A really concrete example that I loved when I was a kid was a game that I called Predator and Prey, which is sort of a more complicated version of Tag. Now this game took the concept of food chains and food webs and then translated it into Tag. So instead of having one it person, the group is split into herbivores, omnivores, and carnivores. Then you have an area of play which is set up with food and water stations. To win the game, the students had to survive at the end of the allotted time, and survival meant meeting certain objectives. 
so herbivores survived by finding all of the food and water stations. Omnivores had to find all the water stations, but only some of the food stations, and they had to catch a few of the herbivores. Carnivores needed to still find all the water stations, but they also needed to catch a bunch of herbivores or omnivores. The game could be played in multiple rounds, and maybe you would adjust the numbers of carnivores or herbivores, and then in the debrief at the end of the game, explore the consequences of these differences. Now, there's loads of other ways to vary the game as well, like introducing things like diseases or disasters. You could limit the number of tokens available at particular stations to represent scarcity or drought. And in really complex versions, uh, you could have kids taking on the roles of specific animal species, and then they would need to hunt down other specific species. I'll put a link to a few different versions of this game down in the show notes. So the next tip was to make it social. Now, making it social is about organizing learning activities so that students rely on each other and build a sense of community. Euro-American education tends to be very individualistic. Students are trained to care about their own performance, their own marks, keep their eyes on their own work. But many other cultures have a more communal orientation, and students with this sort of background can find the individualistic settings really difficult to adjust to. Bonnie Lee, who is a psychology professor at the University of Rochester, she describes communal orientation this way. In a communal orientation, we give because we need. We give because we care about the well-being of other people. And so you don't necessarily expect something in return when you're giving help or care in a communal relationship or when you have a communal orientation. But you do expect people will behave the same way in return. A really simple way to make it social is group work. Well-organized and supported group work can be great. But it's, of course, not as simple as splitting the class into groups. Make sure the task is clear and suitable for division of labor. Group size needs to be appropriate for the time and the task and class dynamics, uh, with larger groups tending to need longer just because it takes more time to get organized and for everyone to have a chance to participate. Finally, storifying it. This is about using narrative structures. It's something which will probably be really familiar with outdoor educators and forest school practitioners. This is all about taking advantage of that narrative structure and our familiarity with it to enhance our ability to remember content. It's often easier to remember events in a narrative rather than a list of facts because events in a narrative provide context for the next event. So you end up with kind of this chain. And if you can remember even one link, you can suddenly start remembering the events that happen around it. And this is culturally responsive because narrative is again key and this is culturally responsive because narrative is key in many cultures with strong traditions of passing on knowledge orally. Then there's simple things about narratives, like the fact that they can build moments of tension and excitement. They sweep the audience up and carry them along with it. And it's also been pointed out that narratives also contain information about the storyteller or about the characters within it. So if it's a science story, those narratives and carry information about what those scientists were like as people. And this can make them more approachable and relatable rather than being like super geniuses or something like that. There's also the fact that the way that 
protagonists face and overcome challenges within the narrative and help children to see ways that they might overcome challenges in their own lives. So those are a few tips for making your teaching a bit more culturally responsive, but we should also think about some of the pitfalls to avoid. First, beware of tokenism. This is where bits and pieces of cultures are scattered through an activity, and this can have the effect of reinforcing stereotypes, overemphasizing differences, and othering already marginalized communities. Things which can help avoid this are making sure that when you're teaching about cultures, make the people central to the lesson. So if you're teaching about rainforests or deforestation, don't just mention Amazonian tribes could be affected. Instead, you might choose one or more of those groups to highlight and make their perspective and their voices central to the lesson or the unit. Another pitfall related to tokenism is taking practices out of context. This can again reinforce inaccurate or sometimes harmful stereotypes. A very simple example of this is depicting people in traditional clothing. Often the clothing used in these depictions is worn only on special occasions. So it's kind of like if you had a story about American Christians and only showed people wearing wedding dresses and tuxedos. A good way to avoid this is to make sure that you're also teaching about everyday life, homes, and pastimes, in addition to those special occasions, sacred places, and ritual practices. Another good approach, if a group is represented in the school or local community, is to reach out to them and ask them what they would like to share, what they would like students to know about their culture. When looking at how peoples and their ways of knowing are represented, look out for infantilizing or romanticizing them. Infantilizing them literally means treating someone like a child. Think of sayings like, kids will be kids, and oh, they didn't know better. A way in which environment education can accidentally veer into this area is presenting traditional methods as the old ways of doing things before new and better ways came along ways which were probably provided by Europeans or Westerners. It can also take the form of once these people thought this, but now scientists know better. This kind of presentation of traditional skills and knowledge has the effect of devaluing those skills and that knowledge and potentially offending or alienating groups of people. Romanticization is in some ways the inverse and can also be problematic. Think the noble savage trope, this is where traditional cultures and indigenous peoples are depicted as being you know, in harmony with nature in the sense of living in it without damaging or impacting it in any way. This paints peoples with a broad brush, making them one-dimensional caricatures. It can also reinforce views of indigenous peoples as being primitive or lesser or lacking in advanced technology. It can also produce other problems uh, because these noble savage type views can also lead to a view of landscapes as being untouched and empty. And if landscapes are thought of as empty, it becomes easier to justify taking over land for development or resource extraction. A strategy for avoiding these pitfalls is to do a more detailed comparison. Look for insights provided by different ways of understanding nature. What kinds of knowledge are generated, for instance, by spending your life living surrounded by forest? 
versus visiting a forest once a month for five years or using satellite images. You might try looking for pros and cons of different methods. So for example, when and why might you choose to bake bread by hand? Why might someone not be able to make bread in a bread maker? Why might someone choose to go to the store and buy a loaf of bread? You can also investigate specific practices and the ways in which they maintained or changed the environment. So think about how widespread was a particular system of agriculture? How did it support the local environment? How did it change the local environment? Basically, instead of settling for the broad brush, which covers a topic quickly, choose to also use the fine-tipped brush to pick out details. So that's where I'm at in my effort to decolonize my environmental education practice. Undoubtedly, I've missed the mark on things throughout the episode, and for those mistakes, I apologize. And if you do have any comments or feedback, I'd love to hear it. Send it in to knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. I hope you found this episode useful. And again, if you want more detail on anything I talked about, check our website, knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com, for the full show notes for this episode. There are links to articles and the resources which I found really helpful in putting this episode together. I'll see you in the next episode for more tips on exploring and engaging with the natural world. Thanks for listening.